0: Lost my best friend. Lost my sister.
1: A Métis woman is strangled at her front door in the spring of 2002.
0: It was a tough one right from the get-go.
1: And there's a single suspect.
0: And I said, why is this man still
1: walking free? He was just a pawn man and a manipulator. I'm David Ridgen, and this is The Next Call. The case of Terry Dauphiney. Available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: This is a CBC Podcast. You know, talent can come in many forms, from the comedy stylings of Steve Martin.
1: I can't possibly
0: express how excited I am tonight because the Botox is fresh. (laughs) To the basketball greatness of Steph Curry.
1: Curry gets a screen, dribbles on Del Vadova. Goes behind the back left hand, crossovers, fades and fires. Oh my goodness! Curry
0: with another three! Or even the astonishing rhythms of the percussionist Evelyn Glennie. We often think that to reach great heights in the world of the arts or sports or science, you have to be born with it. You have to be born with natural, raw talent. The American organizational psychologist Adam Grant asks us to rethink that idea, and he says every one of us can get better at getting better. Adam Grant is a Wharton Business School professor, best-selling author and podcast host. His latest book is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Adam Grant, good morning. Good morning. We listen to those people and, and they're all excellent at the top of their individual fields. And we think that they have to have something special, something that the rest of us don't have and we could never possibly get. Are we wrong in that?
1: I think we're wrong more often than not. And I think the examples you picked are are really compelling. Uh, Steph Curry looks like he was destined to become an NBA superstar, but he was told for years he wouldn't even make it in college, let alone get to the pros. Evelyn Glennie was not born a superior musician. In fact, she's profoundly deaf and can't hear most of the sounds that she plays. And the work that she had to put in to figure out how she could actually feel the vibrations of different notes in different parts of her body um, was a huge part of her growth. And Steve Martin, <laughs> Steve Martin bombed in comedy for years before he finally figured out how to write a joke. So I think it's really easy, Matt, to admire people at
0: their peak, overlooking the distance they've traveled to get there. Why do we do that? Why do we focus on the starting point rather than where they land?
1: I think that it's, it's so easy to be blown away by, by a prodigy. And we look at that and we say that that person is cut from a different cloth. That could never be me. And in many cases, we don't have access to the the early data. I was I was actually watching the Steph Curry documentary recently, yeah. and we never got to see until now the scene of him in high school having to relearn how to shoot because he would release the ball from hip level. And it took him months of, of reconstructing his shot to get a higher release
0: that was harder to defend. And, and that that tape does not go viral
1: the same way his
0: his epic three-pointers do. So much of what you do is look at the scientific research that's been done. And there's scientific research that says things about why we attribute achievement to innate talent. What is that? The classic study here is one led by Benjamin
1: Bloom, where he looked at world-class scientists, artists, musicians, and athletes, And found that very few of them stood out early on. Uh, They weren't recognized as having superior talent by their teachers, their coaches, even their own parents. And when they did stand out, it was not for unusual ability. It was typically for unusual motivation. Um, I think it's often said that the talent sets the floor, but motivation determines the ceiling. Mm. And I think motivation is just harder to see early on. Um, you have to be up close, watching the person, um, you know, observing their passion, their drive, their grit, um, in order to to have a sense of how much they'll grow. Um, and that, that doesn't jump out in the same way that, you know, being able to
0: play a, a Mozart sonata at age four does. Why did you want to write this book now? What was it about about where we're at right now that got you thinking about potential? I think we're at a point right now where a lot of people are objecting to ambition, uh, you know, we've
1: we've seen quiet quitting at work. Um, we've seen a, a lot of people say, you know, what I I just don't want to be part of the rat race anymore. And I'm all I'm all for people, you know, objecting to harsh working conditions um, and wanting to avoid burnout. But I don't think that should stop us from wanting to grow. And so, part of what I wanted to do in writing this book was to shift the conversation from ambition, which is the outcome
0: you want to attain toward aspiration, which is the person you want to become. You wrote a piece in the middle of the pandemic about languishing and about where we were at in the this, this sense that people were kind of like in, in, yeah, this languished state. Is there a connection between that and, and where you went with this book?
1: There is. I think that languishing for a lot of people was the defining experience of, of 2021. It felt like the whole world was standing still and we're all just kind of blah and meh. And the research on languishing says it's not the same as burnout because you still have some energy. It's not depression. You still have hope, but you're not at peak motivation. You don't have a full sense of purpose. And I think that you know, in 2021, it was just the feeling of being stuck. But today in 2023, it can keep us stuck. When you're languishing, uh, you don't marshal the focus that you need to achieve your goals. And that can become a vicious cycle where you start to say, well, I'm lazy, I'm unmotivated, and I'm not going to amount to anything.
0: The other part of that, though, as you said, is is people who, whether it's ambition or not, but they're tired of the grind. They're tired of working hard. And you make a distinction between working harder and working smarter.
1: Yeah, and, you know, when we look at the narrative about how to grow and succeed, um, you know, sort of pushing yourself through the daily grind is the advice that too many people get and i think it's bad advice. if if you look at the data, the athletes for example, if you look at kids who are, you know, are pushed to to put in long hours of practice, they're more likely to get injured. they're also more likely to burn out. and because of that, it seems that that kids who actually specialize early in a sport are more likely to become elite as juniors, but less likely to become world class later in their careers. the the people who achieve sustained excellence are the ones who who figure out how to
0: turn the daily grind into a source of daily joy. What is the role of character in that and, and character skills in trying to, to draw out the potential that might be lurking somewhere in us?
1: I think that character skills are underrated. And I think they're underrated in part because we think about character as virtue. Uh, I think ever since Aristotle, character has been seen as as having principles. But as a psychologist, one of the things I've learned about character is that it's much more a matter of skill than will. Um, it requires knowledge to put your principles in practice, especially when the odds are stacked against you or you're having a hard day. So a, a good example of this for me is in research on the marshmallow test. Pretty much everybody who's a fan of psychology knows that kids who can delay the gratification of of eating one marshmallow now for the reward of two later mm-hmm. uh, end up achieving more success later in life. What we don't realize is that those kids don't have superhuman willpower. What they have are strategies, Uh, If you watch the videos of the marshmallow test, you'll watch some kids sitting on their hands. Other kids will actually hide the marshmallow so they can't see it and they're not tempted by it. Uh, I remember one kid even turning the marshmallow into a ball and bouncing it, which presumably would make it less less desirable to eat. (laughs) And, you know, those are basic character skills. Uh, It's saying, look, I've got to I've got to use my knowledge to transform this situation that's going to take me away from my goal into one where I can stay focused on the goal.
0: You open the book with the story of, of these chess players. I mean, it, and part of this is about that idea of character. Right? Tell me just briefly the story of the Raging Rooks. The Raging Rooks are amazing. Uh, they're a group
1: of, of poor racial minorities in Harlem. They're middle schoolers uh, who have very little exposure to the game of chess. And they're competing against elite private schools that have the chess equivalent of an Olympic training center, uh, identifying the most promising kindergartners, then giving them private lessons starting in first grade. So the deck is really stacked against the raging rooks. But they have a secret weapon, Maurice Ashley, who's a young chess master and who has a real knack for seeing hidden potential uh, in kids where even their own parents don't recognize it in them. And one of the things Maurice works on a lot with these Raging Rooks is, is character skills. He teaches them the discipline to avoid taking the first effective move and look for maybe a less obvious, but ultimately longer term, more promising move. He teaches them the determination to keep going even after they've lost their queen. He teaches them to be proactive in anticipating what their opponent's going to do. And he teaches them to be pro-social in reviewing games together and coaching each other so that they can all improve together. And ultimately, he leads this this ragtag band of students to the national championships and enables them to achieve far more than they thought they were capable of.
0: What's the message of that for people who think, well, that's a nice story, but it, it doesn't apply broadly because they had a bunch of things that kind of came together in that right moment, that alchemy that kind of created that success. Well, the great news here is that this isn't unique to chess.
1: In the chess data, we can see that you know, being super smart, having a high IQ, uh, is useful for predicting the performance of a novice or a kid. But if you look at adult and experienced players, intelligence becomes less and less relevant to the point of of actually seeming to be irrelevant once we get to the level of master and grandmaster. And that's true in any field that that I've seen data on. The farther you get, the less important your raw ability becomes and the more important your character skills become. Um, They determine ultimately how high
0: you'll climb. The obstacles are important in this, um, and part of this is about figuring out a way to deal with discomfort. You quote um, the great TV philosopher Ted Lasso, if you're comfortable, you're doing it wrong. How important is discomfort in that? I think it would be hard to overstate the importance of embracing discomfort. The, the
1: evidence on this is, is pretty striking. So Fishbach and Woolley have, have done some experiments showing that if you give people the goal of learning, they actually improve less than if you give them the goal of making themselves uncomfortable. Mm. And I think part of the power of, of the goal of seeking discomfort is that it pushes you to put yourself in more challenging situations that you might avoid because they could be embarrassing or they could make you feel incompetent,
0: but ultimately are better suited to stretching your skills. How did that play out when you found yourself on a diving board, learning how to... I mean, I read the long resume of things, and that's just the very, you know, beginning of what you've accomplished. But one of the things that you've also done um, is competitive diving. Yeah, it didn't play out well at first. (laughs) You you were poor when you started.
1: I was the worst diver in my school. Uh, I probably shouldn't have even made the team, but I I was lucky to have a coach who said, I'll never cut a diver who wants to be here. I, I was uncomfortable pretty much all the time. I was afraid of heights you know i was constantly dissatisfied with my performance and i would push myself to you know to go down the board and, and take the leap to the end and then if i was a little bit off balance i would stop and start over this is the buck yeah the buck and it was especially bad on new dives um, you know when i had to hurl myself into the air and do multiple flips and twists i, you know, I was terrified that i was going to crash and it it hurt um, but also the feeling of being lost was was extremely unsettling for me and my coach eric one day, I remember I was, I was just frozen on the end of the board. Um, I'd, I'd been avoiding it for about 45 minutes. I was supposed to do a, a front two and a half with a full twist. So two flips, a 360 turn, and then a dive. And I'm just standing there shaking. And finally, Eric said to me, are you going to do this dive? And I was like, ever? Yes, one day I hope <laughs> to do this dive. And he said, great. Then what are you waiting for? And Matt, I've, I've heard that voice every time I've been uncomfortable about taking a new challenge. Mm. Uh, when I was hesitating to write my first book, I heard Eric's voice. Is this something you want to do today? Why not today? And I think the, the message here for me is that a lot of people are waiting until they're comfortable in order to try new things.
0: Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. So how do you convince people
1: that imperfection is okay? Well, I want to start with the question, do you want to be comfortable or do you want to get better? And I think most people are motivated to grow and are willing to tolerate some discomfort to do that if they believe that progress is going to be the reward. Uh, One of the things I learned in diving was I thought I was aiming for perfect tens. And one day Eric sat me down and said, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect ten. A ten is for excellent. Mm. And then what we did was we started setting goals for different dives. What was a realistic target for me? So on that full twisting two and a half, first time, Eric's like, point fives. If you make it, it counts. And I think that kind of calibration makes it a lot easier to, you know, to do something that's
0: imperfect. What was it like? I saw a video of you going back to the diving board. It was on Instagram. And this was like recently. I don't know whether you continue to dive or not, but you were suddenly back there. What was that like?
1: <laughs> Every once in a while. So I went over a decade without stepping on a diving board after I retired. And the shaking came back when, when I showed up at the pool again. I think the the memory of having done it before made it easier to go. But ultimately, what what got me over the hurdle was my kids were watching. Mm. And I felt like I had to prove to them that I wasn't afraid of a challenge. And I think that's a lesson for many of us is that we end up finding strength we didn't know we had when other people are counting on us.
0: There's a humility in that. And I was thinking of that as I was reading the book and then was reminded of something that, I mean, you did a whole chapter in your previous book, Think Again, about intellectual humility and this idea of embracing the joy of being wrong, but also maybe having your mind changed. Right now, we're in a moment where, where people are pretty dug into the things that they believe. And it's hard to change people's minds. It's hard to even talk to people. People talk past each other. They don't maybe talk to each other. Can you talk a little bit about humility in the context of of getting better but also just in the context of actually understanding each other.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about the rethinking challenge. So when studying this, I found that too many of us spend too much of our time thinking like preachers, prosecutors, or politicians. In preacher mode, you're basically proselytizing your own views. In prosecutor mode, you're attacking somebody else's views. And in politician mode, you don't even bother to listen to people unless they already agree with your views. I think it's worth pausing to ask which is your biggest vice of these three. Matt, I'll tell you, mine is prosecutor mode. Mm. If I think you're wrong, I believe it's my professional responsibility and my moral responsibility to correct you. And I've even been called a logic bully, which my wife had to explain was not a compliment. And as soon as I do that, I shut down, but also the other person shows up at court with their best defense attorney. So in order to have a better conversation, I need the humility to realize that I might be wrong. And then I also want to invite them to consider gently the possibility that they might be wrong. And the best way to do that is to actually come into the conversation and acknowledge my own bad habits, right? To say, hey, I can be the world's most annoying prosecuting attorney. Uh, if you catch me doing that, please call me out. And once I've set that tone, the other person will often say, you know, I've been told I'm the fourth most stubborn person on earth. <laughs> I'm working on overcoming that. So, you know, let me, let me know if you see me making that mistake. And we both entered the conversation acknowledging that we might not know everything. And that opens the possibility that we both have something to learn. And gosh, we could use more people doing that right now.
0: You talk about the power of complexifying things and the, the resistance to, to simplifying things. That sounds great. But in the moments that we're in right now, is it possible to avoid the impulse to simplify something that's in front of us? I don't want to say it's easy,
1: but I think the social science evidence suggests that it's it's not only possible; um, it's something we can all learn to get better at. Mm. And one of the ways to do that is to start looking at at problems that seem black and white through the through different shades of of gray. You know, I think a a good example comes from Peter Coleman's research on um, on getting people to have better conversations on charged issues. And what he shows is if he can take a a complex issue like abortion for example and instead of just presenting it as a a one side says this the other side says that if he can say actually there are six different camps here and here are the nuances in their different views that when you come together with somebody who disagrees with you on an entirely different issue like climate change for example um having been exposed to that that many-sided thinking that's enough to lead you to find common ground with somebody that you think you have no areas of overlap or agreement with. And I think that, you know, obviously this is harder to do when we're more entrenched and when we're more embedded in a filter bubble or an echo chamber. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I, I would sure like to see more people try because I think not talking with people who disagree with us means we just affirm our beliefs instead of evolving our beliefs.
0: You could see some of those strategies playing out in everything from politics to parenting. Some of the most interesting stuff in this book when it comes to potential and pushing ourselves is in education. You say that that the US system and maybe Canada too is built around kind of a winner takes all way in, in terms of how we learn. What does that mean?
1: I think that that Canada is actually better than America on this. The the US model is very much we're going to figure out who the smartest kids are, who the best athletes are, and we're going to give them special opportunities. We're going to put them in gifted and talented programs. We're going to give them access to individualized coaching. And then basically everybody else is left behind. And obviously that does a disservice to the scores of kids who have hidden potential. But for a variety of reasons, lack of opportunity, um, lack of you know belief in themselves, they don't end up getting
0: that access. How is that different in a country like Finland? Well, the, the
1: Finnish model and the Estonian model as well, uh, which have emerged as consistently the two best in Europe, uh, if you look at the international tests, they do a lot of things differently, and you know, I don't wanna over-index on, on one particular practice, but I think in both cases, what you see is a, a culture that, that says, we're not gonna believe that the winner should take all. We're gonna try to create an environment of opportunity for all. And that means, as, as one common Finnish mantra puts it, we're not gonna waste a brain. We're not gonna consider our schools successful until every kid exceeds expectations. That idea
0: that every child has the potential to excel.
1: Exactly. And you know, one of the ways that the Finnish schools do this is they have a, a student support system. Every single school in Finland has not only a teacher checking in on their progress, but also usually a psychologist, the principal, a support specialist. And there's a whole team checking in to figure out, are there areas where you're stumbling or struggling? And if so, can we get you extra help right now so you don't fall behind? And I think, gosh, we could learn a lot uh, in the US and Canada from that model.
0: What did you learn about what happens when kids have the same teacher two years in a row?
1: This is some of my favorite research. So it's called looping. And it's the idea that your teacher will move up with you from second grade to third grade, for example. There are now rigorous studies by economists looking at millions of kids in Indiana, in Tennessee, in North Carolina, and in Chile, showing that if you have the same teacher twice, you actually grow more in reading as well as math. Why is, Why year. is that? Do we know? Well, it's a it's a small effect, but it seems to be the case that when teachers and students stay together, uh, they end up building more meaningful relationships. So instead of just specializing in their subjects, teachers get to specialize in their students. Instead of just being instructors, they can become mentors and coaches and do more tailored individualized development, which is ultimately not only good for the, the students, it's also beneficial to the teachers. And you know, Matt, I think a lot of people hear about this research and they say, oh no. What if my kid gets stuck with Professor Snape or with Miss <laughs> Viola Swamp? Let's be clear. The data actually suggests that the teachers who are struggling the most actually show greater gains. And so do the students who are struggling the most. Because that, they
0: see development. They see like change over time.
1: Exactly. And you know I think we know this in other domains. You don't necessarily want your kid to rotate coaches every year in music or sports. You also probably wouldn't want to pass your kids off to a different parent every year. But for some reason in schools, we think a year is enough and it's time to move
0: on. And I think that may well be a mistake. How do structural obstacles kind of complicate this? Because you you acknowledge in the book that in North America, success is often tied to people's family background, their race, their class, where they the postcode that they live in, for example. So how do those obstacles complicate that idea that anyone has potential?
1: Well, I think the, the structural obstacles that people face often prevent them from realizing their potential. And I mean that in both senses of the word, that they don't know their potential, and also they don't reach their potential. I think the, the Raj Chetty data are, are, are probably the most staggering on this, where he and his colleagues show that if you're a student with high math ability, you're about 10 times more likely to grow up to become an innovator, as represented by patents, uh, if you've grown up in a wealthy as opposed to poor area. And you know it's not—it's not hard to figure out why that is. Um, you have access to role models; doors are open for you uh, if you grow up in a, an environment of opportunity. And if you're denied that opportunity, um, chances are you're never going to pursue it. And I think we have a massive amount of work to do
0: to change that dynamic. But if you think about potential as something that's innate, how does that change those obstacles, or at least change how we approach those obstacles?
1: Well, w- what we know is that character skills are more important for kids who are disadvantaged. So, you know, I think there's this, this debate that becomes, for me, a false dichotomy of, well, is it the system or, you know, is it the mindset? <laughs> well, it's, it's obviously both, yeah. but I don't want to wait until we fix all the broken systems and repair all the faulty ladders in order to give kids a chance. I want to figure out what we can do to see the potential in every kid and help them overcome those obstacles. And, and sure enough, if you study what happens to kids who, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, it's the, it's the ones who are taught discipline, determination, who are encouraged to be pro-social and proactive, who end up being more likely to exceed limits. You know, it's, it's grossly unfair that opportunity didn't knock, but that shouldn't stop us from teaching them to build a door.
0: I read this book as a journalist who was going to ask you questions, but I also read it as a parent, Um, Uh, a parent of of teenagers and one who's no longer a teenager. And I thought a lot about parenting and what I've done right or what I've done wrong. How do you think, you're a parent as well, how do you think we should rethink potential for our kids? That's such a fun question. How many hours do you have? It's terrifying to think of actually you know it, it is a little it's daunting
1: and i think the the biggest thing that i realized through writing this book was we should put less pressure on ourselves as parents mm. because so often even if you think you know the message that your kids need to hear they're not going to internalize it when it comes from you like they, they discount it often when we when we see their potential they think we're biased mm. and i think sometimes the most important role we can play as parents to help our kids unlock their potential is to find them the coach or the mentor who they look up to as more objective and more neutral, but also a great role model. Uh, And somebody who, when, when that person says, hey, here's what you're capable of, they really take it seriously.
0: It's a really fascinating book. Um, There's a ton in here uh, that we could have talked about, but I think the message overall um, is that it's a really powerful one, that people have this lurking in them, and we just need to figure out as a society a way to tap into this. Adam, thank you very much. Honored. Thank you for reading and for engaging. Adam Grant's new book is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.